Hello, this is Jonathan Zapp of ZappOracle.com and interviewing Johnny Haberlin. And this is going to be kind of like the uh, black yin dot and the white yang, where the white yang is going to be Johnny's upcoming podcast show, yet to be named. But we're going to start off with a little figure ground reversal by interviewing him. And later he'll be interviewing other people about things related to the singularity as he sees it. Uh, but I'm going to introduce him. He's 25 years old. He lives in Boulder, Colorado, but his family is in Uruguay, where uh, he spends a lot of time as a lead horticulturist of an experimental uh, permaculture farm that his family runs. And he's a graduate of Colorado University uh, in evolutionary biology and ecology. And I'm going to start off by asking you about your relationship to plants, because you seem to have an immense enthusiasm for understanding plants. And uh, it's something that, I mean, I grew up in the Bronx and wasn't that tuned into plants and probably more into gadgets and things like that. But, you know, if you think about it, during so much of the time human beings were around, 99.5% of the time the human form was around, we were hunter-gatherers. And so there was a hell of a lot of people whose intellectual energy went into under and intuition went into understanding plants and all the distinctions. And that be, became a largely atrophied um, part of the psyche for a, a lot of people. But some people seem to be bringing that back. It might be part of what Terence McKenna called the archaic revival. So you're from a new generation, the millennial generation, and yet you seem to have this intense enthusiasm for working with plants like what, what when did you first notice that in yourself and what got you into that well i i moved to the big island of hawaii and just sort of accidentally went to this permaculture intensive over a weekend and i just became in contact with all these amazing people and this culture and how they all use plants and it just it's sort of that just set me off and i just went for it uh, well, what, what can you tell me about the, I hear this word a lot, permaculture, I've got a vague idea of what it is, but what can you tell me about the permaculture culture? Because from what I just heard from our mutual friend Josh, apparently it like extends to everything from economies to like the way you manage your own health. Like what is the permaculture and what, what, what did you find so attractive in, uh, about it? Well, first of all, I mean, you just look at the word culture and you get these other words similar to culture like cultivate or cult so I mean your culture is really who you're worshiping I mean it's almost like a which God are you praying to um, and permaculture it's just it ha it's always associated with permanent agriculture and these like sustainable agricultural systems but I'm more interested in it as a culture that extends beyond just agriculture and into more of the values that people hold and where they put their energy and where, how they live their life. So it's, it seems like it's sort of like the opposite of exploitative capitalism. It's like if they described uh, famously in Rolling Stone, uh, Goldman Sachs is like a, a vampire squid that would just stick its probe into things and just suck all the juice out of it. But permaculture is sort of about keeping a flow of energy going. Uh, would you say it's something about energy or more about like open energy systems or how would you relate it to energy? Like what is it that makes it more sustainable? Well, yeah, it's totally related to this energy tr transfer between us um, and everything else. 
and and so like the relationship between human beings and and, and plants as like a more sustainable relationship and that relationship is partly about food and nutrition but it's also partly about like psychoactive stuff like uh have you done much looking into like the psychoactive effects of plants and does that part of it interest you or well yeah absolutely i'm very interested in the psychoactive plants i think they're some of our best friends in these moments right now on this planet um and even the non-psychoactive plants, I mean, on a very basic energetic level, this whole system is built off of the photosynthesis metabolism. Um, plants are the first people that learned how to turn sunlight into energetic molecules that everyone else can use. So really, they're like the basis of our energetic economy. Hmm. What was really interesting there is, because uh, I, I, I always think that like conversational slips are, are, are meaningful, is you said that the plants were the first people. And I yeah, think yeah. that that's really interesting because I kind of grew up thinking of like plants as commodities and stuff. There wasn't a whole lot of plants growing in the Bronx that I paid much attention to, really. Um, but, but for you, they're, they're, like, they're like people. They're like, they have personalities and life cycles and so forth. Like, is there anything you can riff on on like the people-plant thing? Is that meaningful? Well, hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know why I refer to them as people. They're just, they're fellow organisms. But, I mean, they have their, their cultures just like we do. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I would say that if we were... Like, what makes people much different than plants is that we don't just straight up look out for the best metabolic situation for ourselves all the time. Like, plants don't really tend to foul their own environment with their waste um, like, like we do. Um, so they're, I consider them as just sort of a more perfect organism. They're just completely aligned with their own, their own sustainable path where where we we don't okay well so so we can learn things from plants i mean what 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 should we do differently to be more like plant people um and i guess the people you met in hawaii who were the permaculture people like how did they live i mean what do they what are are, are they doing things to be more plant-like and sustainable themselves and what would those things be well i guess the first thing you would do is start teaming up with plants okay um my friend andrew first said to me and it, it really, like, it stuck me hard how, how he said it. He's just, you know, put the plants that you like and that you want to use right where you live. So I just, I imagined, like, oh, like, maybe I should put this pepper plant, like, right outside my front door because I'm going to see it every time I walk by. And if it's something I want in my sphere, I should put it in my sphere. Okay, as compared to... The, the, the less plant-oriented person, uh, like myself, who might just go to the supermarket and buy stuff that's, not, you know, from a totally different part of the world in a different season. So it's almost as if the, the, the coconuts are appearing out of a Star Trek replicator because they're so mm -hmm. divorced from anything that I would see here in Boulder, Colorado. But are, 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 do you try and keep a, a, your diet to things that are local, would you say? or No, I definitely don't. Um... That's part of the reason I like living here in Boulder is because we have such amazing access to all the most beautiful consumables on the planet. They, I mean, coconut waters, bananas, like suddenly we're able to eat these things in the Colorado Rockies. It's pretty absurd, but it's great. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's great, too. I mean, it's, it's definitely like one of the, the, the upsides of our present situation is it might not be sustainable, but we are able to have a, a greater variety than potentially that than other people's, though apparently the average American is actually eating mostly corn. They're just eating all these food-like substances that look like all kind, you know, look, look like fudge-filled waffles or sausage on a stick or whatever, but when you really drill into it, it's really corn or animals that were fed corn and so forth. So, so some say that hunter-gatherers had more plant variety that, than, than we do, unless, of course, you're a boulderite raw foodist or something like that. Right. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. The corn culture. That's a good example of another culture that isn't so aligned with the permaculture. And that we really, do, it's the cult of the corn. We worship this corn in such a big way in this country. Um, and if we, if we go back to this idea of, of this energetic economy, um, I haven't really been studying it so lately, but a while ago it just it seemed like you know, the, the corn industry is so subsidized and it's grown from fossil fuel fertilizers and basically with these, these energy stores that have for these this recent moments sort of divorced us from the natural energetic community that everyone else is going by, like all these animals and the rest of nature. But oh. we've unlocked this awesome energy of the fossil fuels, and we can grow all this amazing corn and feed all these people. But but it, but it's like a more and more of a mono culture crop. Yeah, I guess it's the called. mono, the mono culture. Right. Well, and I guess that affects people's consciousness too. I mean, I'm not getting all the corn products because I'm one of those eccentric Boulder health food people, but. Uh, I wonder what it does to your consciousness if you're eating food that really all is just different forms of the same plant. Yeah, that's a good question. It may be a lot more subtle than some of our more potent psychoactive plants that we know about, but I think definitely, I mean, there's changes that happen to your body when you are eating corn sugar all the time, at least. I mean, a high sugar diet, I mean, you're in this certain mood from being sugarized Right. All the so, time. I mean, everything we eat is, is like filled with information and it could be lousy information. It could be... Yeah, it know, could be lousy information. information. Right. Uh, you know, and it was, it was grown with like unworthy intentions and that kind of thing. And the, the corn industry is subsidized with sort of corporate welfare and all that kind of thing. <clears throat> but you also were, uh, we were talking earlier and you were relating permaculture uh, to the singularity. And I know we may have different versions of the singularity or lots of people have different versions you know i wrote a book re related to that but we're, we're, right now we're more interested in your version of it uh what sort of singularity do you relate permaculture to well i'd say if you just look at the basic word of permaculture it's the idea of this culture that can be permanent so in order for a culture to be permanent it's going to have to worship the same things that that the universe is made out of, like the universal dynamics. I mean, that's what we're going to have to worship. Um, and I, I see it as, as a sort of like a marriage between the human mind and the universe. And that if you're in this permaculture mode, you're, you're trying to align with the way the universe works to, be, to sustain yourself.
or you know be stronger or what, whatever it is you want to do but usually it's just to sustain yourself I mean that's what animals do that's the name of the evolutionary game is to, to pass on your genetics to the next level so if you can do that better and better that's that's a, a really good way to go and that this singularity is like a dissolving of this egoistic bubble and returning back to this bodily consciousness that we emerged from that that was crafted by the universe and if we can just be in this this body consciousness that's that's very singular with the rest of the universe it's not like a technological singularity it's it's more like a singularity of mind and universe um i know that's pretty like far out and vague but i uh, know i mean i think it's it makes perfect sense i mean i think what what you're describing as a singularity is got a lot in common with what Terence called the archaic revival, where it's about undoing the insanity, the unsustainableness. And, and I, I like uh, the word sustainable better than permanent, just because permanent to me sounds lifeless or something's, you know, life is, is, is change. Mm -hmm. And so I want it to be a, a sustainable, dynamic thing. And so I think maybe permanent is a, is a, a poor word choice, but... Uh, I guess that's up to the permaculturists to choose their own words. But, uh, <clears throat> but it seems like it's about going back to where the cosmic laws are respected and therefore you're kind of flowing with the principles that allow things to be sustained. But I guess I kind of wonder, is that sufficient for as novelty a generating species as human beings? I mean, like bacteria live live perfectly in accord with the Tao of the cosmos and so forth. But um, uh, is, is, did we just make a mistake leaving the rainforests and, and ceasing to be hunter-gatherers? Or is there some new version of respecting cosmic laws that could allow for greater novelty and allow me to keep my iPhone and things like that? Yeah, I, I feel like there has to be a new version. I mean, we definitely didn't make the wrong decision by whatever it is we did, leaving the rainforest. Okay. Or however you want to put it, becoming modern human beings. Okay. Because I know that there's like a, a version of anarchism, I think it's sometimes called green anarchism, where people feel like we just, you know, we should just crawl back to the forest and we just made a mistake making anything more complex than a flint axe and, and this kind of thing. And, and <clears throat> I don't think it's a mistake. I mean, we, we, there's a lot of collateral damage, but I think the novelty is great. So how can uh, we do this singularity incorporating these permaculture principles but still allowing us to have the internet and things like that well yeah no that's a really good question i'm thinking about that it was in these more recent these more recent years that we're talking about becoming more modern and that we've developed this sort of mirror of the world that's in our minds and that allows for for a greater creativity and and I think that we're we're like approaching a more whole mirror of the of the real universe that that's contained within our minds and that if we weren't if we weren't to have developed all this beautiful technology and this awesome modern way that we do things we might not be able to develop a model that would allow us to unlock the sort of greater singularity consciousness. Yeah, I, I don't know. Okay, so part of it is that we're getting a, a, a more and more complete 
idea of what those cosmic laws are and because we are animals that have that interior space where we can create like a mirror, a simulacrum, or something um, of what, what, the, uh, what the cosmos is, a, a simplified lower resolution picture of it, of course, but, but some kind of a picture that allows us to kind of, I guess, tap into the source code and be able to manipulate um, the cosmic laws more, but without gross violations that, that threaten life on the planet and, and that kind of thing. Um, is that more the sort of thing that you're talking about? That's or? what I'm talking about. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what what can we do that will bring us closer to that? And it doesn't have to be everything, but like, what are the things you find in your life that help you to move in that direction? Well, that's that's a good question. Um, of course, people can be really helpful. People, friends, teachers, um, information from people. But in my own life, I found that I've learned so much just from plants that that interact with your nervous system. I mean, some of these, these shamanic sacred plants, they really are our friends right now. And for me personally, they've taught me more than, really like more than any single person has been able to, to teach. They're really good friends for for learning yourself and sorting through your own information and trying to get your internal world to mirror the external world or hmm. become more... Well, now, I know you, uh, and we don't have to get into this if you don't want to, but I know you lived in South America where you, you could legally partake of more of these kind of plants that you're talking about. Um, could you give us an example of one of these kind of plants that you feel has been a, a teacher for you and what kind of things you, you've learned from it? Well, yeah, um, ayahuasca is a great example. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's it's a plant mixture from the Amazon. It's basically a magic potion. Most traditionally, just two different plants combined in a, a really thick brew. And that medicine, you I mean, if you just go looking for it, you can find all sorts of sort of seminar centers or retreat centers that facilitate this experience. And... Um, when I was a senior in high school, I, I went to Brazil to this, it's what it's now called the Vine Healing Center. And of course the vine is the magic plant that they call ayahuasca. And I was just with my father and my mother had recommended it and it was just my dad and I and the woman who fed us the medicine and she just, she just had us state our intentions and provided a really stable set and setting and then we just interacted with the medicine and I couldn't even believe how amazing it was it was like tapping into this this mind and just so healing um, for my body and my and my all levels of my being it's like a truly nourishing sort of food and, and the fact that you had your parents take you to this experience that was happening legally in this country and, and, and is also part of a, a rich tradition in that country that goes back thousands of years, I believe, with the, the Amazonian shamans and so forth. It's just such an amazing contrast to the U.S. educational system that that's demonizes the natural human impulse to take plants to alter consciousness. And, and yet the results of the American education system, and I was a teacher in it for 14 years, are often so dismal in terms of 
creativity and people having their own connection to the muse and being able to learn uh, in this much more deep and mystical way. But what, what kind of things, do you remember what kind of things you learned from the interaction? And it, did it feel like you were just, had your consciousness altered or do you feel like you were interfacing with another consciousness? Well, if it was just me, my consciousness being altered, then I gotta say, I gotta say, good job, my own consciousness, because I can't imagine thinking up these things all by myself. I mean, if it, if it was only me, then that's amazing. But if not, and it is some sort of other intelligence interacting, that, that may be the case. Um, that's what it, it seems like to me. And I remember my first sort of really clear lesson was, was I, I saw this snake in, in sort of my dream vision world. And I, I, a little red, red flag flew up and I was like, uh-oh, like snakes, uh-oh, like reptiles, cold-blooded energy. Like I don't, I don't like that stuff. And the, the vine or this voice that was coming from this medicine just said, like, no, like, don't worry. And she just sort of showed me um, in, in my own dream. I just watched the snake slither around and I just I understood that snakes aren't something to be feared. I mean, they they're just doing what they know how to do. And, you know, some people have an amazing, amazing fear of snakes. And I sort of did, too. But. It just, it was lifted away and I just, I understood that they're just doing what they know how to do and yeah, they're slithering around in the shadows and pretending to be sneaky and stuff, but that's just what they know how to do. And if, if you can see into the shadows and they're just slithering around, I mean, you, you understand what, what that is. And I guess I understood that the snakes aren't evil. And uh, yeah, shortly after I bought a snake Ooh. as a pet. And I still have them. Oh, wow. So we can say that, that, that this particular lesson about the snakes was also about a movement toward another real event horizon, which is about uh, crossing away from our being divorced from the natural world and viewing it as hostile or something to be conquered or uh, an object of paranoia like it is for, for many modern people and where you are kind of seeing the... the validity of all parts of the the web of life and and you refer to the plant as she and now i'm getting a picture of like why you refer to them <laughs> as persons that that not only did you experience this as an entity but an entity that had a gender what was it about this plant that made it seem like a she well yeah i mean when i first sort of encountered the energy in the medicine like when the i guess when you could say like when the drugs started kicking in i mean i saw this overly feminine silhouette above my body and she was sort of oh, really? like wa waving her arms above me and sort of yeah I don't know how to describe it sort of just like dancing above me with this like really loving energy and yeah and I was like wow how's this feminine silhouette I remember I remember like the really big hips mm -hmm. and um yeah, that's like the most feminine detail I remember, like a big, big hips, like this pear shape. And then... Like a fertility uh, totem or something. Yeah, totally. And then she actually, the silhouette, like reached down and touched my forehead. And I felt this sensation on my forehead, which I then saw to be little blue dots. And she kept tapping on my forehead. And these little blue dots started to go around and they made like a window frame. A nice big rectangle. To this, these dots were the same rhythm as 
her touching my forehead. Ooh. And then this 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 window sort of gave way to this place, and I I entered this sort of dream space, and there were these characters that really looked so much like the Egyptian beings, like the half animal, half person type of being that we see, like these Egyptian gods, like I don't even know, like Ra and uh, sure, I I don't yeah, I don't even know, but one of them was was holding a snake, and then I, that was when this snake lesson began. I was like, oh, like there's a snake here and yeah they're, they're holding the snake and they just showed me there's nothing to be afraid of with these things these snakes hmm well it's hmm. interesting because it almost sounds like you're you were a portal was opened into the collective unconscious and and i've heard often that with ayahuasca people see things even if they're taking it in new york or something that they'll see images related to Amazonian shamanism, which of course the snake could be related to or to any type of shamanism, but actually you saw stuff from a different culture because you saw sort of these Egyptian gods and goddesses. So it's almost like you were seeing archetypes or something like that. Um, but it, it, it sounds like a really am amazing experience. And how did you was there any other content that happened in this experience or lessons that were taught? Did you ever see the, the feminine figure again after that? Or were you just kind of brought into the stream time and explored, explored that? Well, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I suppose it's possible that I could have been sort of subconsciously indoctrinated by other people who are talking about ayahuasca and that they say it's a feminine plant, a, a feminine spirit. But, I mean, this seems to be the case. Like, most people report a very feminine energy. Um, well, I like the way you think about these things because you're, you're, you're also thinking about contrary possibilities or prosaic explanations rather than being a true believer. Like you said, you know, I, th this could have been my own psyche. If so, great job, my own psyche, because we don't really <laughs> know where our psyches end and other things begin at a certain point with this kind of mystical experience inner and outer just become blurred and people people who are true believers on either side the materials will say oh well you just had a hallucination your brain was just messed up or something and they'll reduce it that way other people will be like oh well the goddess came forward and they'll just completely lock onto that and i think it's okay to uh, be able to accept the ambiguity of not really knowing for sure but able to see like but its effect on me was great mm -hmm. so wherever it came from it was a great relationship and it was one you weren't having before you took the the medicine presumably uh so and then you also said you know you uh, recognize that that the influence you you weren't this part of the setting wasn't and set wasn't a completely blank slate because we've all heard about these things but I, I think that there's a, a feeling when you're in the tremendum uh, of, of one of these experiences where it feels like it's beyond just like the power of suggestion uh, it, it feels incredibly real and I'm wondering what other content did you experience with that first when you once you stepped through that portal and you saw the the gods and goddesses did it just kind of go off into the snake lesson or like anything else happened with it well let's see um it was a pretty long time ago and unfortunately i didn't write it down you would have been like 18 or at the time or something yeah something like that okay um yeah i can't remember 
anything of specific value from that that first experience. Um, okay, but how were you changed by it? It sounds like a life-changing experience. I mean, did your personality shift or your way of looking at the world shift after that first experience? Well, I think, so, I mean, something definitely shifted inside me. What precisely? I don't know. Um, I certainly felt good um, after that. I mean, I returned home very energized. I actually remember it was during a, a Christmas break that we went to Brazil and I came back um, and I went to my buddy's house and th they had just been hanging out in Hawaii this whole time just uh, abusing opiate drugs and I came back into their den and it was just like oh my god like I'm over here bubbling off of this this beautiful Amazonian medicine and my friends are here just like just just terribly unenergetic and it was just a, a massive juxtaposition of energy i mean even my friends noticed they were like wow like johnny you, sh you shouldn't even be here hmm. well that's an interesting contrast because what we see in in the west where drugs are forbidden is people have very dysfunctional relationships with these things it, oh, the taboo doesn't keep people from taking these things it just has them taking them from street corner drug dealers with corrupt motives where things are cut with you know uh, all kinds of contaminants and where the people also seem to have a very degraded relationship to it because it's a materialist culture. So it's sort of, they just uh, become ever more attached to the white powder or whatever it is, or they don't, it doesn't seem like an ally. It like what you experienced like was more of a plant ally. Absolutely. A, a true friend and teacher, a great ally. Yeah, I really, I, my, one of my hypotheses is that that in this moment, so many of us are sort of seeking to develop this sort of ecstatic body or like, I don't know, some sort of like information body or, you know, some, something like this where we're sort of reaching out in, into the dark like amoebas, trying to like find the foods that make us feel good. And um, I've just seen like a lot of my friends who, who don't seem to really do their homework. They, you know, they're, they're like getting high on white powders that they they don't know where they came from and yeah I mean they make you feel ecstatic for a while but like I really feel like if you do your homework and to see what people have been eating to do this it's these certain plants and that those are the real foods for building this type of body that so many of us are attracted to right now to be building I mean I just like, it's just so many people, they love to get high. Like, you know, people love to get drunk or, you know, whatever. Like, we want to feel good. And there's there's really, like, certain foods that, or plants, you know, whatever you want to call them, that are better than others for, for this purpose. Well, it also sounds like it's, it's not just that some plants are, are better than others, which they obviously are, but also that uh, if you want a plant ally like what you experienced, it helps to have a different kind of relationship to it. So like the person who's doing white powders, the white powder you know, is so far removed from the plant that was grown in another country than where they're taking it. It was you know, cut by different people and who, with corrupt motives and all this kind of stuff. And so they have a total abstract relationship to the plant, just like the person who's getting a frozen pizza you know, that pizza is so removed from the corn or soy or wheat or whatever that it came from that you, you can't see the plants 
that is coming from. So they have a total disassociated thing. But it sounds like for you, you're getting more ally relationships with plants. And part of it is learning about them and having them near you. So it, 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 is that the kind of thing you're talking about or the singularity that, that uh, we would have more of a relationship with the natural world? Or? I would think that that definitely plays into it, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I feel like ayahuasca is an amazing medicine for, if not the mind and the soul, like your body also. And, and I, yeah, I mean, as I was saying, a part of the singularity, maybe it's just like realizing that we really are, at least on some levels, like grounded here on this planet in our bodies. And if we can make our bodies more healthy, then, you know, everything will be better about our story. Because, I mean, if that's just the physical foundation of your being. So does, so permaculture applies to the body. That's like the first ecology you've got to deal with before you can do anything else, I guess, right? Yeah, may, maybe so, huh? And, and part of having a more sustainable permaculture with your body, it's about having a more conscious relationship with plants because ultimately that's where all food comes from and maybe an animal that ate the plant or a plant in the sense of a, an industrial plant that processes plants and turns them into <laughs> God only knows what, Skittles or something. And, uh, <clears throat> but, but by going to the actual source, which are the organisms that have that ability to transduce sunlight through chlorophyll into, into caloric energy and into the, the, the most basic form of food, it seems like you can improve your relationship to your own body as well. But, um, but I was also interested that you felt like that, that the ayahuasca, because usually you think of these substances as taking a toll on the body, but you actually felt that it not just gave you psychological and spiritual novelty, but that it was also good for your body too. Yeah, I, when I drink it, I feel pretty energized the next day and days after too. Okay, um, so obviously you've had many subsequent yeah. experiences and uh, what are some of the more interesting things that you've learned from those experiences if you want to talk about it? Well, hmm. can you give us like an example of like... Well, one really simple example was the, the first time I encountered ayahuasca in, in Brazil I just, I felt infused with this, like, this sort of cosmic divine mind or intelligence. And I just, I just asked, like, out loud, like, how do I keep this going? Right. And the plant gave me a really clear answer. It was just music. That's the answer to keep it going, music. Hmm. And, and, I mean, I, I remember being a little kid and liking music a little bit. But then there was really a, a day when I started listening to music every day. And that, that was when I was like, you know, 12 or 13 with Blink-182. And since then, I've always had music. And music's a powerful, powerful thing. Um, so that, that was just one, one little tidbit lesson from the vine. How to keep feeling good is to have your good music. Well, I mean, it seems like the, the vine sounds like it's sort of the voice of the left hemisphere or, uh, or <laughs> that, that it's... It's because music, of course, is left hemisphere, so it's, it's sort of encouraging you to uh, uh, go in that direction, it sounds like. But were there any uh, experiences where you were shown visions or taken on a journey or 
uh, any of those kind of things that we've hear people report related to ayahuasca? Yeah, a, a handful. Um, yeah, some of them can get pretty pretty far out. When I mean, when I was 23, I had a brilliant adventure with this medicine. Um, that's really just like, it's, it's too big of an ordeal to even get into, but um, I really experienced this, this archetype energy that that Jonathan talks about the singularity archetype, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't really know what to say about that experience. It was, it was a big, a big life-changing ordeal okay. for me. When you say ordeal, you mean it involved uh, suffering? I mean, I, I guess I'm tempting you into talking about <laughs> it. And it sounds like it might be something you don't want to talk about because it might be too private or just explode the language envelope too much to try and put it into words or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I could just start talking about it and for, we just for get a lost good, a good long while and okay well let's move on to something else then uh, you are going to be this is this is kind of setting up people to know more about you and then you're going to be the interviewer and going to be doing your own show that's part of your uh, whole singularity investigation and movement toward that like what are your intentions for the show like what what do you want to share with your audience well I guess, just to start off, I guess this whole idea was sort of inspired by, by Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan experience, um, his podcast. Um, I'm, I'm sort of a big fan of this, this character named Jason Silva, and um, he's, he's a futurist, and he, he just has a really good way of talking about the singularity and this amazing evolution that we're all experiencing. Um, but I just I was I was watching their podcast and I was like wow like I can I could do that they're just hanging around talking about fun stuff I've got a lot of stuff to say about this this topic so my, I mean my intention is really just to explore in a sort of inspired um, multidisciplinary um, meta analytic I know is that a word meta analytic meta-analytic sort of way um, to, to bring in things from all sorts of the map and put them together in these ways that seem relevant to what we're experiencing right now or what we expect to experience with this, with this singularity idea. Because um, I feel like the singularity in terms of a technological singularity, people talk about a lot. I mean, it's, it's like a really common way of people talking about the singularity and I'm more interested in not reducing it to just technology but like I, I always like how Terrence McKenna would say no the singularity is is um what was the word he used like emerge the merging of biological and technological intent so that seems to be more of along the lines to me like um it's not just technology but it's like technology reflecting this innate biological intent that we have. So just in terms of technology, I don't, I'm not so interested in that. So that's why I'm, I'm interested in this aspect of permaculture and like the cultural aspects of a singularity. Um, I mean, even just like a cultural singularity, if everyone on the planet was of a single culture, I mean, what would that culture have to look like to be able to incorporate everyone? It would it'd probably be pretty 
bland because it would be a lowest common denominator. So it would look well, pretty, look like Maoist China or something. May, Everybody's may, wearing the same gray pajamas or something. I would guess. <laughs> maybe, maybe, but no, I'm I'm more optimistic than that. Um, I think that everyone appreciates the good, and there's pretty pretty many basic things that just about everyone can agree that are good, like you know good food is is good um health is good you know what else um we might have our own different ideas of what good music is but i feel like sometimes music can just make about everyone think it's good it's like wow that's some good music so it's hmm. like just the good i mean that's something we can agree with, like that there is this thing called the good sure. it might be different but there's there is some basic goodness that we all share. Right, and I don't know that people, a lot of people have been brought up in colleges and universities to think it's all relative, it's all in the eye of the beholder, but I think if we went around the world and we had daisies and amethysts and uh, uh, music like uh, Appalachian Spring and, and, and green sleeves and stuff, like people could just feel the basic goodness coming off of that, and if we show them the paintings of H.R. Geiger and, and, and stuff like that. I mean, and, and, and you know, uh, death metal music and that kind of thing. People can feel that there's something not so basically good about that stuff. So I think that there is a real difference. And I think it sounds like to me, but you tell me if this is right, that, that the theme of your show is about the singularity, but more the organic side of it, unless we, we tend to emphasize the gadget side of it. And there are the whole transhumanists who seem kind of anti-body and it's just mm -hmm. a big embarrassment to them that they have a corporeal body and they just mm -hmm. can't wait to be uploaded into some, you know, quantum mechanic, quantum computer inside of a titanium alloy exoskeleton and just be free of their whole, of the whole human experience. And, and then we get other images of the future that, that are, are very pessimistic, all the dystopian sci-fi, usually where like transhumanism has basically gone wrong and like the robots or uh, you know, evil artificially intelligent computers have taken over or something has gone wrong. So it sounds like what you want to focus on more is evolution that is a little bit more organically centered and that's also like aiming toward the light and is optimistic. And... That sounds like a fantastic theme for a show. Yeah, that's that's pretty right on. Um, the other part I want to add in is like the the culture of singularity. Hmm. What um, is the, What would you consider? Well, the I've culture of singularity. I keep falling back onto this permaculture thing. Okay. Um, but like as as Terence McKenna would would talk about history, like if, if history did sort of engulf itself and end, I mean, if there was some sort of something that made us transcend our history and that it became completely irrelevant to our situation. Um, there's, there's a very cultural aspect there to me. Culture. Um, okay, so the, 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 the transformation, the evolution is going to come out of human culture, which is a thing that is both a product and something that fosters different types of, of, of human consciousness. And I'm kind of from the humanities rather than the science, so I'm, I'm all for that. Would you consider, like I probably do, uh, Burning Man as a singularity culture, even though it's not a sustainable... You've been to Burning Man. It's Does Burning Man have, have any connection to the singularity culture? I would say absolutely. Um, 
I mean, you get all types of people there, and they mm-hmm. sort of all appreciate each other on some basic level. Okay, so it's not a monoculture. It's, it's not, not a just monoculture. all like people who are studying mechanical engineering or something like that, having a convention. Yet they all share some set of values on at least some level. I mean, they chose to go into the middle of this dusty place hmm. just to party for a week or to explore whatever it is they want to do there. And, I mean, that's that's a, a culture. Very, I mean, yeah, that culture isn't so concerned with, you know, is it basic things that other cultures are concerned with, like what you, what you might wear, what your hair is like, or like really basic things. Um, and yet, like and yet this, it's very into costuming, so it, it, you, you're allowed to present yourself in very strange ways. Right. So it, it's like, it's very open. Um, Hmm. So it's it's more open to novelty. It's not judging people against a single standard. Like, you know, you don't have... You, you didn't tie your tie with a Windsor knot or, and that kind of thing. It's sort of... Uh, it, it, it's it's into dress and into uh, looking certain ways, but, but where anything goes, basically. It seems like it's, right. it's, it's opposite op- of monoculture. It's open to this, this exploration of novelty and... Um, I mean, if someone finds some new way to dress that is cool, you know, other people might think it's cool at, at Burning Man because they're, you know, they're like after coolness or they're exploring like what the good stuff is and it's, it's, it's open. It's like open to evolution. It's not a culture that wants to hold on to what it was last year as much as, I mean, of course, they, they do want to like keep this Burning Man culture alive. So they do like hold on to the the past a little bit, but um, but within that structure, you can just do anything you want with it. It's the opposite right. of a monocrop. It's not like instead of everything has to be corn or everybody, every guy has to be wearing a certain type of dress to be a regular guy. You could you know look like a cross between a time bandit and a Las Vegas showgirl or like whatever. However you want to dress uh, is perfectly acceptable. Well, like yeah, like if we just think about systems like let's say we've got like a a computer system or just you know some program that has very basic amount of information um and i want to say that would be something like a monocrop corn agricultural system um we've got like very low genetic diversity it's just a very non-diverse system and like it seems just on an intuitive level that these systems are much much more vulnerable to to breaking down. Um, like if we just look at the Irish potato famine. I mean, that was an exotic potato brought brought to Ireland, and then it was basically like very low genetic diversity and w- whatever it was, what was it, a mold or some sort of virus or something that took out these potatoes? I I don't even know. But you know, systems of low diversity don't really do that well with infection and stuff. I mean, it's sort of a basic ecological tenant too. I mean, you, more diverse systems mm-hmm. have greater resilience to change, ironically. Um, hmm. But like, you know, Burning Man, it's like this very diverse system and like you, you'd be hard to go into Burning Man and like say something that would like blow everyone's mind. I mean, like, yeah, maybe you'd like rock a few people's worlds, but 
there's so much diversity with people that they're all operating on all these different systems. It's a very diverse system with so much different information that, you know, if you tried to infect it with just some information virus, like, you know, wh whatever, it, you wouldn't what be able to get everything. One conspiracy that everybody would believe, you, know? you wouldn't get exactly. Wouldn't get a whole spread through the whole group because the right. group's so diverse that a lot of people would resist any one idea. Precisely. Uh, as compared to like a monocrop, which to me would be like, uh, a whole bunch of fundamentalists who are all chanting the same thing and, and, and therefore they can be taken over by one evil religious guru because they're, they're kind of like a monocrop of minds that have all been entrained to one hierarchy and one way of doing things and one way of dressing and one way of tre treating gender and sexuality and all these different things. So it sounds like you're relating Burning Man to this evolutionary trend which seems to be toward um, greater novelty, but besides these exceptional situations like taking ayahuasca or going to a festival like Burning Man, which is one week out of the year, how can people or how do you uh, bring the, that kind of those kind of values? Because you talked about implicit values that people at Burning Man might have in common, and I'd love to hear more what you think those are. But like, how could you bring that into your day-to-day -day life, and how do you bring it into your day-to-day -day life? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is following, and that, yeah, like, it's not so cool to follow. I mean, you should think for yourself and decide for yourself and follow your own path, and that's one way to stop a sort of, like, homogenization, because, I mean, if, if you're checking the information as it comes through you, then maybe you're, you're you know, you're, it'll change or you won't adopt a faulty program if there is such a program running rampant around. So, I mean, one thing is just thinking for yourself and, I mean, that sounds, it sounds kind of silly, but. Um, well, I don't, I don't think it's silly like, at all. I mean, and, and you've been out of college for about a year, but you're a huge consumer of information. Like what kind I, of skills do you bring to that consumption of information that. Uh, well, like one thing is just, like jump there's different bandwagons that you can jump off of and like when I was studying evolutionary biology um, I'm a pretty spiritual person and it took me a while to sort of understand um, like this this conversation between intelligent design like God made everything versus like the evolution where it's sort of self-made the things self-manifested and that took me a while to understand and and, and now, like, I, I see these people that they're arguing for one or the other side. And, and like, for example, there's, there was this, um, a table, you know, with all these books about evolution at, at CU, University of Colorado. And there were these kids, you know, raging against intelligent design, like, boo God, like, go science and evolution. And I, I stood and I, I talked with them for a good hour and a half. And I walked away just like, they're, oh, those are just like Bible pushers. Like those are it's the same type of people. Like that was the nature of their argument. It just, they reminded me of Bible pusher. Because like, they, they, were, they were like scientific fundamentalists. Like they yeah. just had a party line and, and it was a monoculture in that everybody at the table had the same party line, in other words. And... And, and no more acceptable are the religious folks that also have like this party line. 
So how, how do you uh, sift through information without bu buying into a party line? Well, maybe I do buy in sometimes, but I, I try to, the middle road is a good, a good way to be. Um, always, you know, don't, don't take the extreme path. And yeah, I, I, it's a good question. I'm really into this, this multidisciplinary aspect. Like, I think it should be rather easy to integrate, like, super spiritualism and, like, hardcore evolutionary theory. And, mm -hmm. like, commonly those two things are sort of at odds. And why? Um, and I'm quoting someone I don't know. I can't remember who they were, but they, it was beautiful. And, and it, they said, yeah, I mean, this, this argument between God and science, like, it's just between like sh bad scientists and bad religious people like if you get either really great people on either side you see they're not like way off on that side they're more of in the middle um because it's one truth if 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 we're looking at the truth whether it's from a spiritual point of view or a scientific point of view we should be able to have some kind of communication because we are still beholding the same phenomenal world right so if you if you can't do that um, even with skilled people from the other side, then it suggests a parochialism that somehow you've become a specialized being that can only speak to other specialized beings. And, and I, I like this. I mean, I think this is probably a big part of your uh, intention for the show, it sounds like, is the multidisciplinary, holistic, generalist thing. And mm -hmm. I'm definitely a generalist. And, and uh, maybe that's why I was drawn to Jung, who is big on being a generalist. And, and he decried the soulless age of experts and people who know more and more about less and less till they know everything about almost <laughs> nothing. And so it sounds like you're, you're kind of a, a generalist that's uh, uh, driven by your own enthusiasms about what information to, to seek out. Um, but do you, what, do you bring in reality testing? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of consumers of information that have gone, at least to my mind, too far on the end of uh, sort of excessive credulity and they you know believe anything that that they feel good about or that sounds magical to them like where do you stand uh, as a consumer of information but with a scientific education well I try to go what feels like it makes sense um, so I mean maybe you could say I'm biased and that I trust my feelings more but I mean I also trust my mind too but like I see this this thing happening like if you, if you get into these sort of sketchy parts on YouTube where there's questionable information in video form um, you know you, sometimes you see these people who are just so ridiculously buying in mm -hmm. to whatever information is being there and then and then other times you see people who are just so critical of that information to a point where it just it makes it even a little more obvious that no like actually this is true because these you know there's these people who are just so against it and they're making these logical arguments that you know they work well in a logical point of view but like you just take a step back and it just doesn't seem right hmm. um i mean we were talking before how like logic is a great thing but you also have to have your intuition to decide what direction to point your your logic uh, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more and it sounds like we're both saying 
different versions of the of the same thing that that you want to avoid. You want to be open minded, but uh, you know, not just totally foolish and and willing to believe anything that shows up as a, as a, a YouTube video. Uh, but <laughs> you. Uh, so you want to bring in your critical faculties, but you don't want to bring them in to such an extent that it sort of sterilizes things and, and you just start to attack um, everything or identify pridefully with being a debunker and that, and that kind of thing. Yeah, the debunking, huh? Yeah, Mythbusters, it's a, it's a funny show. I've been impressed how poorly scientifically created, I don't know, how would I say it, like, their experiments for debunking certain things are just pathetic in my mind. Some of them. I mean, I'm sure I should think of some examples, but... I mean, in terms of, like, scientific it's like methodology. It's like straw man. You know, they... Like in rhetoric, where you mm -hmm. just set up something to fail, um, but it's not really a, a true representation of that other point of view, but you just create a straw man that you can cast down. Because I've never watched the show, but they're just... It's all about debunking things. Well... Like, back to this, what we were talking about, how, about balancing or reality check, checking or what, whatever you want to call it. Um, just recently, there's been some interesting activity I've been a part of on Facebook. Um, one of my friends put up this, this article where this, this, basically, like, this hippie was talking about, you know, maybe GMOs, genetically modified organisms, aren't that bad. And he just went into exploring that that like, you know, they, there's a lot of potential in this technology. And, and I, I absolutely agree. And, you know, I, I replied to this post, I was like, yeah, like, that's, that's great. But, you know, I, I still feel the same way in that the, pe the people who are really utilizing this technology, like, don't have values that are aligned with the collective and, like, really are a sort of toxic organism to this planet. From from my point of view, and I'm I'm no I'm not alone, and and my friend came back to me and he was like, dude, I didn't really feel like you understood what that article was saying, and I'm like, no, like I did, like it's cool technology, but, you know how we're using it isn't cool, so like what, and you know that's that's where we sort of stop this conversation, and then just just yesterday I put a post up on Facebook about how turmeric is you know some it's just as potent as as Prozac for treating depression and the same the same friend who I was having this GMO conversation with he came back and he said like oh look like you didn't read the article very well because look none of the statistics are uh are what's the word significant you know what I mean they're, they're statistically significant yeah and and like you know he's he's absolutely right and I, I actually did notice it in the results, but then I, I went on to reading the discussion, and it just seemed, it just seemed like, well, yeah, I mean, okay, they weren't statistically significant, but, um, I mean, that's like a killer point. I mean, he slammed me with the statistical argument, but I mean, I still, I come back, it's like, dude, you, you're looking at the trees. I'm trying to see the forest here. Well, what, what I like about your point of view is that, that you're not just identified with the party line of a particular subculture because the subcultures that you and I might feel more comfortable with are sort of monolithically anti-GMO. And uh, there, there could be some good application for 
genetically modifying organisms if it just wasn't in the greedy wraith-like fingers of Monsanto that you know has such corrupt motives and and so forth but you could you know does it mean that the whole um, the whole idea of genetically modifying things Paracelsus the great alchemist who was a big influence on, on Jung said you know probably during the Renaissance era that man was here to finish nature you know we are an interventionist animal and so I'm not against the idea of it in principle that it's just a Luciferian usurpation of power because Mother Nature created, as Terence put it, you know, a technology extruding animal that was going to break into all these things. It's just that can we do it in a way that's a lot more responsible and that's more aware of those cosmic laws and isn't just looking to like the fourth quarter profits and, and, and that kind of thing. So, it, but, but it sounds like you're open to people challenging things scientifically, um, as well as people presenting alternative ideas. And, um, and so I think that that's a great combination. It gives me high hopes for your show that it's going to be multidisciplinary and open to uh, reality testing, but also to totally new ideas and to an optimistic and organic uh, side of a new evolution. So I'm hoping uh, to hear your next show where I won't have to do any work as far as being <laughs> an interviewer and I'm going to get to hear the, the amazing content that you're going to be exploring with somebody else. Well, great. Well, thanks for the interview, Jonathan. Okay. Uh, great talking to you and I, I look forward to hearing the first podcast. Thanks. I look forward to doing it. Okay. Awesome. So this is Jonathan Zapp with Johnny Haberlin signing off. Thanks for listening. Over and out. All right. You did it all in one second.